shot that we got. All right? We're going to run the picket fence at them. Now, boys, don't get caught watching the paint dry. Welcome back to the Picket Fence Podcast. Uh, we're really excited to have you back today. We have a really exciting um, episode with a lot of different information. It's been about a week or so since we've had our last episode. Uh, I'm Cam Smith. I'm Derek Early. And we have a really fun episode with some brand new, uh, not so much breaking news here in Indiana, but... Uh, we'll get to that in just a minute. Uh, today in our episode, we're going to be uh, in our shoot-around in just a minute talking about the brand-new New Albany basketball coaching hire that we've discussed several times on this podcast. We'll get to that shortly. Uh, coming up in our four quarters, we'll be talking about the conference realignment. Uh, so much so, we're going to spend two quarters talking about that very hot topic in sports. Uh, the Team USA basketball team competing in the FIBA World Cup and the Hall of Fame induction ceremony that's going on this weekend for the Basketball Hall of Fame. And then at the end of the episode, we have a pretty fun topic. I'm going to save that for just a little bit. Um, We'll talk about that in a little bit. Kind of a surprise topic that we think is going to be really, really fun. But to start off in shoot-around, Derek, um, I think we should discuss this brand-new hire, breaking news again and again and again (laughs) coming out of New Albany. Uh, in the hiring of Jason Jones at uh, yeah. New Albany High School. Yeah, I th- think it's kind of a position, came that you and I talked about a little bit that uh, obviously we thought was filled back in April, May. Um, had a coaching change kind of unexpectedly there in the middle of the summer before summer league was over. Job remained open for quite a while. I know that, you know, in talking to you about some of how the summer things played out, that their, their assistant and, and their JV staff kind of – kept the ship afloat for a little while for them. Uh, heard several rumblings, heard several names, heard a couple of options that got thrown around. Again, don't want to speculate much, but you always hear the rumor mill going and staying pretty active. And this one kind of came out of left field, I think, a little bit. Uh, don't know a whole lot about him other than some of the states that he's coached in, places like Kansas, Colorado, uh, Florida, and Georgia. Uh, but... Hopefully it turns out to be good. I guess he's, he has 20 years of coaching experience, and, you know, that's hard to replace. So hopefully it turns out to be a good hire for New Albany. You know, they deserve to have a good hire down there, especially with the pedigree that their program's had the last 25, 30 years or so, uh, always being a solid program. They deserve to keep that type of, of tradition going. What are your thoughts? Yeah, first of all, I agree. They deserve the best coming out of this. Um you and I and the, the podcast itself, the pretty big fans of Jim Shannon, um, he gave us a great interview and just has been top-notch in terms of class and basketball uh, in Southern Indiana. And so they deserve that. And it was such a weird thing to start in the summer to have a brand-new coach in New Albany, which is big news anyway, and for him to leave and for it to be just constant rumors. I mean, there was... You know, this guy almost took the job. That guy almost took the job. And there was just constantly that for, you know, basically two months, maybe. Like most of, uh, I guess basically through June and July, that was pretty much all we heard. So Jason Jones gets the job. Um, And first of all, I want to shout out Coach Jones. Uh, Our Twitter account, at Pick Events Podcast, uh, followed him when that news broke and he followed us back. So we just really appreciate the follow back from Coach Jones there. Just think that was a really classy move right off the bat. Uh, Hopefully we could have him on at some point. 
But, yeah, he comes with 20 years of coaching experience. Uh, like I know you previously mentioned Kansas, Colorado, Florida, and Georgia. But in an interview on the News and Tribune, he said that his dad is actually from Washington, Indiana, which is cool. So he's got some, some Hoosier ties, which is good to hear. Uh, I think this is just above all else. Uh, nothing against Coach Jones because I'm sure he's going to do a fabulous job, and it looks like he's done a great job everywhere else. Uh, it's just sort of surprising when you have someone coming from a school and he's was at Kansas last season and now coming to Indiana. It's just right. um, an odd jump, not not looked down upon in any way. I mean, I, I'm really excited to see what he does. But it just is pretty surprising, especially at New Albany, when you would think there are a lot of other local candidates who may have had their name you know, in there already. Um, so it was just sort of surprising. But... That being said, it seems like he's pretty excited to be to be here in Indiana to bring his family back here. Like you said, his dad's from here. Um, he has had a career all you know over the United States. It's very interesting, and he he mentioned a lot the desire to want to come here and coach. He talked a lot about um, getting videotapes of you know guys like Damon Bailey and Sean Kemp playing in state tournament games and so I thought it was pretty cool that he mentioned kind of the love for Indiana basketball so that definitely that desire to be here is there um, sometimes it's a struggle for people from other states to come in, in into Indiana and succeed yep uh, we've, we've seen that before and sometimes other you know Coach LaFave is one that I'll mention he's from you know a couple different states he had bounced around and came to Indiana and had tremendous success so we really wish Coach Jones Success. I think that he'll be great. I don't think New Albany is going to make uh, poor decisions. It doesn't. They don't have a track record of that, um, especially in basketball. Uh, I'm excited to see what he does, and I'm a little bit, uh, I'm a little bit anxious to see it. But I'm also still, still just kind of surprised because it did come out of left field. However, um, that doesn't take away from the fact that I'm sure Coach Jones will do a great job. Yeah, it's just I'm with you. It's a little bit rare to see somebody from out of state come in and take that job this late in the game. I mean, as the, school's, the school year is getting under underway here, and you really don't see people from, especially that far away, uh, come into a job that is New Albany with the tradition that they have come in and, and take that job, you know, this late. But, like you said, you know, congratulations to him. You tip your cap to the guy. Has a great resume. He's got a lot of different experience in a lot of different schools, different states. And with Indiana ties, uh, I think that that's something that certainly wants, you know, Indiana basketball draws a lot of people, like you said, and a lot of interest and a lot of applicants. But having family and having a dad from Indiana, I think, may end up making it a smoother and maybe a better transition for him too. So hopefully it plays out well and, you know, good luck, and hopefully they have a really good year. Yeah, I agree. And I think it also plays into the kind of the upcoming story going into the season that the Hoosier Hills Conference uh, is really had a high turnover. Um you know, we had talked about it with, with Coach Teagle, and he was one of the new additions there. But Hoosier Hills is looking like a very different conference in terms of uh, the coaches in charge there. So I'm very interested to see who comes out on top, uh, if it's a rude awakening for some who are just in there, uh, you know, if, if it's going to be tougher, because we know it's a very tough conference. Um, so I'm interested to see what they can do, uh, but also very anxious to see the new style of basketball we're probably going to see coming out of Hoosier Hills. Yeah, a lot of turnover there, several new coaches. Um, you think, you know, New Albany, Floyd Central, Jennings County. Um, you know, Jennings County comes off of arguably their best season in program history. They're looking for a new coach. 
Um, so a lot of turnover there, like you said, and could be a, a whole new brand of basketball in the Hoosier Hills. It's always competitive. It's always fun. There's always loaded talent, um, but it, it certainly could have a different look and a different feel to it this upcoming season, which for us will be fun because it's something for us to pay attention to. You know, you're coaching in it. You've got some some Hoosier Hills teams on your schedule, so uh, we'll at least make the season more more entertaining and a lot more to talk about. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, we we added New Albany to our schedule this year, so we'll definitely see Coach Jones. Best of luck uh, to them and all the other Hoosier Hills teams that with with the new coaches. Wish you the best. We're excited to see what you can do, uh, Derek. I think we're warmed up here. Uh, when we come back, we're going to play four quarters with some really hot topics in basketball. All right, Cam. As we come back, get in here to our four quarters segment. We're going to start off with a pretty hot topic here in the sports world, particularly the college sports world, not just talking about college basketball, but talking college sports across all areas here, men's, women's, talking football, the whole nine yards, and that's college realignment, college conferences realigning here with schools switching affiliations and making some big changes. It's going to make the landscape of college athletics look much, much different. Uh, Cam, what what do you got leading into this here? So, yeah, before we really get into the breakdown and, you know, our, our kind of our thoughts, first of all, this is probably, I guess, the biggest news across all sports, I would say. I don't know if there's anything that I would say is the hotter topic, more polarizing topic than this right now. I've seen a lot of comments from other coaches. I saw Rick Pitino the other day on Twitter. Uh, he had some comments about it. Um, and a lot of people are, you know, chiming in on this. I think it's... Very, very interesting. It's making college sports look very different. It is not in any way the traditional things that we've looked at. Um, But just to fill everyone in if they haven't heard or seen this yet, essentially the Pac-12 is really non-existent at this point. Um, There are a few teams that remain. Am I mistaken in saying that? Right. uh, Yeah, but... It's, it's crumbling at this point. So teams that have left the Pac-12 have joined the Big Ten Conference and the Big 12 Conference. Joining the Big Ten now will be USC, UCLA, Oregon, and Washington. And joining the Big 12 are Arizona, Utah, and Arizona State. Um, these are not like a smaller college. That's what kind of my first thought. This is not like, you know, like locally, like a Bellarmine that's made some big news from going Division Two to Division One. If they jumped up into the Big Ten, it would be, you know, interesting that a smaller school had made the jump. These are the biggest traditions in basketball and football that we have, or, you know, they're up there. And they're moving not only conferences, but basically going across the country um, to these other other conferences that, again, are not traditional. But it, it's kind of shocking to me. I'd heard about it. I didn't know if that was actually going to be something that happened. Um what are your thoughts off the bat? Ah, Cam, we got. I mean, this is why we're going two quarters on this one because I'm just I'm fed up. Uh, I'm not real happy about it. And just from the standpoint, just from the standpoint of of being a traditionalist, I think when it comes to college sports and growing up with these different conferences, growing up with the traditional Big Ten, you had the Big East that was a massive deal in basketball. Uh, you had, you know, at the time the Pac-10, now the Pac-12. That was a big deal, and not only football, but you know, basketball. And you had these traditions, and you you had set rivalries, and 
I feel like now you're kind of taking a little bit of the luster away from those because now you're being driven by nothing really much more than the almighty dollar. And we know that, you know, obviously college football is the big time moneymaker for the NCAA. And I think that's what's leading a whole lot of this is the football conversation. Uh, I don't like it from the standpoint of you, you are, you're removing some of those rivalries that you get to see year in, year in, year out. And maybe you still will get to see those. Uh, but to me, as important a conference as the Pac-12 or the Pac-10, however you want to look at it, as important as that conference has been for so long, to look at what is happening with that conference essentially, essentially being decimated uh, when you look at US, USC, UCLA, Arizona, Oregon, and Washington all jumping ship, uh, there's nothing left there. And, you know, I think about it too from a student-athlete standpoint, and we can talk about that here in a little bit, uh, but I feel like logistically it makes things really difficult for universities. And uh, for me, I'm like I said, I'm probably, I get my heels too dug in in some conversations probably, but in some, in some cases I like things staying the way that they are and the way they have been, because I believe with conferences, I think it's no different than looking at Indiana high school basketball and keeping those conferences and those rivalries and those games close to home, um, you know, to where you're not having to spread yourself out that much. But uh, we know that money talks, and that's the big driver here and the big motivator. So we'll see how it goes and how long it will last, and we'll have a, we'll have another conversation. I've got some points I'll make later on, but um, we'll see. I'm not thrilled with it. I don't love it by any means. But, again, I'll hold out hope that something changes my mind. What do you think? Yeah, I think, you know, I've just kind of looked at and, and done some research on the pros and cons of this. You know, I understand the initial look. The initial look, I'm on board with you. It just doesn't look like what, we, what we're used to, what we've grown up with, what we've seen. You know, as a guy that doesn't really follow football a ton, I'm looking at it basketball-wise and just looking at it as, from a traditional standpoint, just someone who watches it as a fan. The idea that your conference and the rivalries are local is part of the appeal. Um, there's a lot of trash talk among coworkers and friends because, you know, for example, us around here, being, you know, an Indiana and Purdue rivalry. Uh, yes, there are other local rivalries that aren't in the same conference as well, but you have that. I don't know anybody that watches UCLA basketball here um, consistently or USC football. It's just not something around here that you hear people talk about a lot. Um, so money, yes, is the driving force. I think just looking at it from a fan standpoint, there is not the tradition of man really wanting to see Indiana or let's say a more traditional football school. You know, Michigan and USC doesn't carry the same weight as, you know, Michigan and Purdue. It, and it will, I guess, in terms of rankings. But in that local field of fans wanting to tune in, I don't think it has the same, and maybe it'll create a new rivalry. But I think initially the feel to me is what I... Um, have the initial dislike, if that makes sense. Just seeing a lot of these new teams, and to be honest, I'm strictly thinking Big Ten. I know the Big 12 looks different. Uh, I don't have as much of an opinion on the Big 12 because I don't follow it as 
much as I do Big Ten teams. And I know we're an Indiana podcast and we're talking about that, and that's kind of going to be our primary focus. So sorry, Big 12. But uh, Big Ten basketball and football has these very tight-knit rivalries, and I'm sure the Big 12 does too. So seeing these teams jump in, to me, is a little bit awkward. I think the first couple of years, I think the feel of it's just going to be quite different. Um, I think it's going to drastically change the schedule, especially for something like football where you're not playing as many games. I think that's one of my bigger questions. So right off the bat, I've got those. Um, and as I say this, our first quarter buzzer is about to go off. Uh, and again, as Derek mentioned, it's why we're taking two quarters on this because it's a pretty hefty discussion. So I'm going to start the clock on quarter two here. But I think that's one of my other things. So Derek, I'd like to hear more of those concerns you're wanting to talk about. I have a couple, but I know... I know this one's burning up, so I'm going to clear out and let you ISO for a minute. Well, the it was interesting because I got a chance to listen to the head football coach from Missouri, and he spoke on this. And usually head football coaches kind of live in a different space, I think, as far as on the university level and in the coaching spectrum because football, for all intents and purposes, kind of is king, whether it be collegiately or professionally. They, it just makes so much money. Uh but for him to stand at that podium at that press conference and, and answer the questions about conference realignment the way he did, talking about the impact on the student-athletes across all sports, and you alluded to it with the scheduling factor. What do you do with the schedule now? Football, obviously a little bit easier because you're playing one game a week. But when I think men's and women's basketball, particularly just for you know the sports that, that we've coached, you know I think about from a basketball standpoint, but you can talk about it from – baseball, softball, soccer, whatever, how are you going to schedule road trips now? Because now you're looking at college athletes almost being forced to make NBA or professional sports-esque road trips. You know, it's going to be tough to say, you know, Indiana, Purdue, Michigan, whoever you want to talk about, okay, well, on Tuesday you've got a game and you've got to go to Washington. Okay, so now you're going to fly – two or three time zones away, you're going to go play a game at Washington, and then you're going to play a home game on Friday or Saturday. Or you've got to go from Washington, oh, and by the way, your next road game, you're going to go play at Penn State. So now I think that they're going to have to look at how do they align that. I would say having those four schools from the Pac-12 coming into the Big Ten, and I had this conversation with somebody the other day, my, my guess would be the adjustment would be you would play a game, say, in Washington on Tuesday, and then you would turn around, stay on the West Coast, maybe go play UCLA on Saturday, and then fly home and go back to class on Monday. But, you know, how does that look for teams that need tutors? How does that look for academic assistants? What does that look like for assistant coaches? How are you going to afford to pay for two or three extra nights in a hotel for some of these programs? And there's a lot of, to me, the logistical questions or what these universities are going to have to figure out. Um, I understand that, you know, like we said, the, the money side of this is the big driving force. Uh, but, I, again, I don't love it. I love trying to think about the regions of the country and breaking your conferences up based on who is close by. You know, who are, who are the universities that are near us, you know, that we can be competitive with. Uh, but there is or seems to be a pretty legitimate desire you know, to keep the Big Ten alive, the SEC and the ACC. You know, those are the now the three big conferences. You, you spoke on the Big 12. I think that they had to make a move. Uh, 
you know, their conference, I think, is getting a little bit desperate, especially on the football side. They're losing Oklahoma. They're losing Texas to the SEC. Uh, you know, so the Big 12 has to try and keep itself relevant, so they go out and they get Arizona. So at least now from a basketball season standpoint, you have some interesting conversations you can have. But uh, I got one more point I'll make, but I'm going to let you go for a second, and then I'll jump back in. No, man. I mean, this is definitely something that's really stirring up a lot of sports fans. Um, the couple of things that I've thought about it, um, and I've had, you know, a lot of different. I've gone through some. Man, I don't think I don't like this at all, or it'll be fine. I won't notice it. But you know, I've I've read a lot of people's pros and cons, um, and in reading that, all the pros are really money related, and I get it. I mean, it's hard to argue that. I understand if it's a financial benefit. I understand why a corporation would do it. Um, some of the other things I've seen are, are a little silly, like, you know, oh, if this team comes into the Big Ten, it will make the Big Ten a faster conference and not as, you know, a slower-paced football. Or, I, I don't think that that merits being on the list. Uh, but thinking about scheduling, and not just like what you were saying, but I thought about that a lot. Some of the road trips that these kids will be taking, if you're going, yeah, like Penn State to Washington, you know, Purdue to UCLA or USC, in the middle of the week or something. Uh, those are pretty far road trips, especially considering you're playing two, maybe three games a week, and you're going back and forth across the country. Yeah, It's a lot different than what it was. The other thing is, especially in football, with conferences getting bigger, are you going to play everyone in your conference? And in basketball, I think it's going to be near that too. There's going to be a point... Or I'm not sure. I haven't seen how, the exact number to, to be able to look at it. But is this going to take away, you know, teams playing each other twice? Is this going to take away rivals playing each other two times in yeah. kind of home and home games? Uh, th- that's one concern for me. Is you know they're saying well it may take away some there won't be as many natural rivalries. Well, it might also hurt the natural rivalries because now you're not playing a home and home. Um, I've seen where they're talking about having divisions within the conference. Uh, these teams will play in their division and this team will play in that division. Um, if they're going to do that based on geography, we already had that. Um, <laughs> they were in their part where everybody was pretty local. Um, and if they do that, I really hope it doesn't break up some natural rivalries because I think that would be a risk. Uh, at some point, something would have to give. Uh, and then we would hope that they would make the decision not to break up a, you know, let's use Big Ten again, a Michigan-Michigan State game, an Indiana-Purdue game, or, you know, you would hope they wouldn't break something up like that, but I don't necessarily think the natural rival thing will hurt. It will be more, does it hurt the rivalries because we're not seeing the games we're, we're used to seeing that right. a lot of people tune into. Um, so that's kind of my concern. I really want to know what the schedule actually looks like. Yeah, uh, Student-athletes traveling like this is going to be a big deal. I think it will really be a big deal. Um, and then just... Wanting to know how how it looks and hoping that it doesn't kill kill any of the rivalries because yeah. you're adding in so many people. Uh, you had you had one final point. We got a little bit left yeah. here in the second. Well, quarter. just looking at, at the the Big Ten again because that's kind of where we're at. That's kind of what our our wheelhouse is. But obviously, looking at them, their desire is to have teams. I think in every time zone, based on what right. we're looking at. You know, so they've got now they have teams New York market. East Coast market, Washington, D.C., they have the Midwest dominated. They've got Chicago. They've got Indy. But now they push the conference all the way out to L.A., to the West Coast, up into the Northwest. And I think that that's kind of their desire. And somebody made a good point on TV 
that now the Big Ten is at a point that from the time college game day on ESPN is over, those noon kickoffs, you have Big Ten football for 12 to 13 hours now because you've got the noon kickoff on the East Coast. You've probably got a 3.30, 4 o'clock game somewhere in the Midwest, and then you have that late start out in California every week. You've got nothing but 12 to 13 hours of Big Ten football, and I think that's probably a driving force. And looking at this and seeing how the Pac-12 has dissolved, you know, thinking about the Big 12 seeming to get a little bit desperate with needing to bring teams in, uh, I think we're at a point where your traditional Power 5 conferences are probably on the cusp of breaking away from the NCAA and forming their own league. And then I think that's how we get these – I think that's how we probably get conferences or at least divisions back to a regional landscape. I think they're going to have to have that conversation. And football is going to be the driver. You and I both know that. You know, the other sports are probably going to suffer a little bit. But I do think we're looking at the Power 5 schools probably at some point here in the very near future, a couple of seasons away maybe, breaking away, forming their own league and then simply divvying out conferences and divisions within that based on a regional basis. And to me, that sadly is maybe where we're at, but I wouldn't hate to see that move either. Yeah, I think you're probably right. I've heard some rumors of that, and that would be, I don't know, not something I would look forward to if that was the case, but hopefully things will work out for the best, and maybe we'll look back on this in a couple years and think it hasn't affected that much. I'm not sure about it, though. (laughs) All right, here at halftime, though, we're going to turn um, away a little bit from the frustrations and, and, you know, sort of the hot topics in that way and have a couple more fun discussions. Uh, here in the third quarter, I'd like to talk about the FIBA Basketball World Cup uh, that they're doing, uh, especially Team USA. Uh, they had their warm-up game yesterday against Puerto Rico. I'm going to start the clock here in the third quarter. Um So first of all, I'd like to say that there was a lot of worry about this team because it's not the big-name superstars that we have, but I just want to start off by saying that I love this team. Let's just – I just want to get that on the table right now. They're quite a lot of fun. So the FIBA World Cup is not quite like the Olympics. It's got, um, you know, the same basic premise, but they do that um, every few years, and it kind of goes like – every two years based on like it's FIBA World Cup and then you have the Olympics and so it's like basically every two years you get one or the other yeah um it's got a a few big names and I'm just going to mention a couple here Anthony Edwards uh Mikhail Bridges Jaron Jackson Jr. Jalen Brunson Brandon Ingram Tyrese Halliburton uh our hometown pacer um Paolo Bancaro who is the number one overall pick Austin Reeves is a big name that come out this season and a slew of other I would say maybe second-tier superstars. I might uh, define them as that. But yesterday, to give an insight to the game here, uh, the United States beat Puerto Rico in the opening game. Um, I think it may have been some form of an exhibition, 117-74. to Before I get started talking about a couple of things, Derek, I want to know your thoughts about FIBA World Cup basketball, Team USA, or some other teams you've seen around the world. Now, I've always enjoyed every single summer, and it's that two-year rotation. You get the Olympics. Two years later, you get the FIBA. Uh, the one thing that I, I kind of have an issue with is everybody throws all their chips into the Olympics when it comes to USA basketball, 
and then it kind of feels like these FIBA World Championships take a back seat to a certain degree, and you've got some guys that want to sit out, they don't want to play uh, for whatever reason that it may be. And like you said, you kind of end up with a, a FIBA team that's put together of some second-tier players, and your best players typically set FIBA out. And to me, that kind of puts the USA in a weird predicament because I look at Canada's roster, uh, I look at, at Serbia's roster, and all of the guys from those countries, from the NBA, are playing for their country. Uh, you know, but that's not to take anything away from our team because I'm with, I'm with you. I do like our team. They're young. They're athletic. I think they've got some guys with grit that are going to play hard, that are at least going to take pride in putting the jersey on. So, you know, those guys that wanted to sit out and not play and not represent their country, uh, hey, you know, more power to you. Stay home. I want guys that want to put the jersey on, that want to wear the uniform. And if they're going to come out and perform like they did last night against Puerto Rico, I think it's going to be a pretty fun FIBA series. Yeah, so that's why I really like this team. Um, and I get it. There's not as much uh, – you know, uh, publicity when it's not the Olympics. I do understand, but I think that's why I like this team is because we've got a lot of guys who are on the cusp of becoming superstars, and this team plays so hard. They play at just a ridiculous pace. They were so fast yesterday. Uh, Anthony Edwards is just shot out of a gun, man. When he gets the when he gets the ball, penetrating hard. Um, Jalen Brunson looks like a good leader for them. Uh, Tyrese Halliburton. Ended up with 12 assists in the game yesterday, um, and he was just putting on a show. I mean, like he does in Indiana, but just really putting on a show out there. But the guy who looked the best is uh, another hometown Hoosier, uh, and Jaron Jackson Jr. He looked unbelievable. He just physically looked bigger than everybody out there. Um, it looks like that's going to be the case against most teams. He really kind of broke out this season, especially defensively. I know he's been kind of building, but really had a breakout year. But he just looked like he was somebody that was – going to be very very difficult to stop and very difficult to score on they have that rule in FIBA play where you can kind of goaltend essentially yeah. like you can knock it off the rim he really benefited from that uh, physically was super imposing I think we just have a very young team a very athletic and fast team that all kind of want to play the same pace yeah. and I don't know if there's a lot of teams uh, that are competing that can match that pace. Yeah. They went on a 20, and I know it's Puerto Rico who's not necessarily a powerhouse in terms of basketball, but they went on a 20-0 run in the second half yesterday, uh, and that just seems like they could do that against anybody. Just could really run off a lot of fast points at any point just because they are just pushing all the time. Uh, I really like FIBA basketball. I know there are a couple guys that are sitting out, like Jokic, you mentioned Serbia. He's not going to play for Serbia, but I do kind of get that they are coming off the finals. I do kind of want to see him in that. Uh, Luka Doncic is playing for Slovenia, and he is putting up just ridiculous numbers. Uh, very high point, rebound, and assist, triple doubles. I think that's going to be the guy that the United States may have to deal with if they're, if they're looking to win this thing. I know that you would watch some, and I'd watch some of those practice clips. Yep. They had Cade Cunningham, who I'm guessing wasn't on the roster just because he had been hurt last year. I don't know how he didn't make the team because he was the best player on the floor. But they had him playing that Luka Doncic role to kind of scout for that. Yeah. So it was pretty cool to see they had him doing that. But uh, what stood out to you when you watched those practice clips? I think scrimmage? just how young and athletic this squad is. Yeah, and, and that's what's entertaining to me because I'm sitting here and I'm looking at the roster and I'm looking at these guys and, you know, about half of the team this year had 
what you could almost call a breakout season where it's like they finally found their role in the NBA and they officially announced themselves as an NBA player. I think Tyrese Halliburton, Austin Reeves, Anthony Edwards, Jalen Brunson seems to have found a legitimate home in New York City as their starting point guard. Uh, you know, Paolo Bancaro's rookie of the year. Like you said, Jaron Jackson Jr. gets the defensive player of the year award. And Brandon Ingram, who has been a, a very quiet, very solid NBA player for his entire career since he got drafted by the Lakers. And then Mikel Bridges, who just decided he was going to go to Brooklyn and turn into a top 10 player in the league. So uh, that to me is going to be the entertaining thing is to see how fast this team can play, what type of pressure they can put on the ball, because they have legitimate backline defenders. You know where the guards can probably be probably be a little bit more aggressive up front with ball pressure because they know they've got guys behind them. Um, they're going to be able to take the take care of the rim, protect the rim, and like you said, with the goaltend rule, that kind of changes things in how you defend the paint. Uh, I'm with I think as far as competition, United States obviously would I think would be number one, but I think Canada is going to be very tough with the roster that they bring. Uh, France, if they have their entire roster, they may be the biggest team in FIBA or Olympic history. You're thinking Wimbanyama, Rudy Gobert, Joel Embiid, you know, all three of those guys that are at least 7'1 or 7 feet 2. So maybe it doesn't play out that way in FIBA, but certainly as we move forward with with international competition, there's going to be a whole lot of fun to be watched because I think there's more talent right now around the world globally from international players that maybe we've ever seen, talking Serbia, Slovenia, and some of those other countries with legitimate NBA superstars. Yeah, I agree. I think, um, you know, I don't know who all is playing. I know France, I saw Rudy Gobert hit a three the other day. That was, that's like Haley's Comet. You know, I mean, they'll come around 100 years from now, but uh, I think it'll be pretty fun. I think I like the young roster strictly yeah. because you got guys that have something to prove. And I like your point about the ball pressure because – the past couple of years, it seems like Team USA has been smaller, running like Duran at the five or something. Yeah. They've got, like we said, Jaron Jackson Jr. and Walker Kessler, who is a big-time shot-blocking rookie. Uh, we haven't had size like that for Team USA in a while, so I think they'll be pretty fun. Uh, and I, I, I hope you know, I hope to see them as the buzzer goes off here. I yeah. hope to see them make a run at this, especially with this young core that just seems to be really fun. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Oh, we went off twice. They're, they're really trying to move us on here. The officials yeah. are pretty tight. Yeah. Um, Get off the horn, <laughs> clock keeper. Uh, our final topic here, uh, our fourth quarter topic, uh, is kind of just a feel-good one. And I just kind of want to hear your thoughts or memories you have on the guys. Uh, we have the NBA Hall of Fame induction coming up this weekend. Uh, and some of the guys that they've got going in are some – you know, not so, uh, not some, you know, under the radar guys or, you know, you know, guys that are just trying to fit in. We've got a pretty star-studded class. Uh, so as I start the clock here, being inducted into the Naismith Basketball Hall of Fame this weekend is Dwayne Wade, Dirk Nowitzki, Tony Parker, Pau Gasol, and Greg Popovich. Uh, those are the biggest names going in. Uh, this is probably one of the biggest classes we've had in some times in terms of just all-time players and name recognition. I think that's just going to draw people in just from the name itself. But uh, to get a little bit nostalgic here, uh, I don't know. I think this is one of the more fun classes, one of the more likable classes. Uh, there's a, there's not really anybody on this list that I think 
anybody could say, oh, I wasn't a fan of that guy. Yeah. Uh, just going down the players list, I don't know anybody that's ever said they don't like Dirk or don't like Powell or Tony Parker or even Dwayne Wade, really. Yeah. I mean, even when the whole Miami Heat thing went down when they brought the big three, everybody really blamed LeBron. Yeah, it was <laughs> still it was still D. Wade's team. Yeah, it's good. Dwayne's team, they didn't, they didn't say a word to him. So this is probably one of the most likable, and of course, obviously, with Greg Popovich to kind of top that off. But uh, just what are your thoughts? What are you thinking about? And do you have any, like, fun memories of watching these? Yeah, it's, a, it's a good list. And, I, you know, uh, start off with D. Wade. I thought it was interesting. Pat Riley made a cool comment uh, that Dwayne Wade is the greatest player to ever put on a Miami Heat uniform. You know, like you said, I'm not taking a shot at LeBron, but, you know, D. Wade was there for – much, much longer, you know, brought Miami, that, that title kind of broke the heat through with Shaq in 2006, got them that title, and he essentially put the team on his back that year in 2006, um, and I don't think gets enough credit, there's a quiet conversation about where he stands in the rankings of all-time two guards, um, but to me, he's the third greatest shooting guard of all time, I think, obviously, you've got Jordan and Kobe, and you can argue about where the gap is between those two. You can argue about the gap between second and third place. But for me, I would put D. Wade as the third greatest two-guard of all time. Dirk, absolutely phenomenal career. Probably the first great European. You know, maybe talk about Drazen Petrovic um, when he came over in the early 90s. But probably the the greatest European player that we've had come over to this point, you know, not to take anything away from Luka and, and Jokic, obviously, but as far as a career that's been from start to finish now out of the league that we've seen from, you know, all the way through, you know, to score over 30,000 points, to me, Dirk has the greatest NBA title in NBA history. In I two, agree. It's my favorite one. In yeah. 2011, beating Miami. To me, it's, it's the greatest. Um, you know, we talk about D. Wade putting the heat on his back in 06. You know, Dirk did the exact same thing. Miami had no answer for him in that NBA Finals back in 2011. Uh, Pau Gasol. Like you said, I think he gets this award strictly based on all of his basketball achievements, whether it be NBA or whether it be international. Uh, top 75 player of all time. You know, it wasn't loaded down with titles, but was just an incredibly consistent player every single year. You knew you could count him. He wasn't going to miss a ton of games, um, battled through some injuries throughout his career at certain points, but never missed a ton of time was there with the Lakers in their second round, uh, or Kobe's kind of second go-round of winning titles, getting two in a row there in the, in the mid-2000s. But had a ton of success internationally with Spain, you know, playing alongside his, his brother and Ricky Rubio and Hernandez when they were the second-best team in the world, you know, behind Team USA there for a little while. Uh, and then Tony Parker, who I think does not get nearly enough recognition in the all-time point guard conversation, uh, I think, you know, we Magic Johnson obviously is going to be the all-time great point guard, but there's there's a lot of talk about where Chris Paul and some of those guys rank, and I would put Tony Parker equally up there with those guys based on, you know, not just titles, but his ability to play the game. I think he's an incredibly underrated point guard, completely underrated NBA player, and a lot of it has to do with the fact he played against or played alongside you know, three or four other Hall of Famers and was coached by Coach Pop, who's also on this list too. Uh, but Tony Parker, this is very well-deserved for him and I think really solidified, solidifies his career to me. And I'll let you have the floor. No, yeah, I agree with that. First of all, I don't 
I want to apologize to the head coach of 42 years from Amherst College and David Hickson. He is also in this class, and he doesn't quite have the you know the, the high praise as these other guys. But no, I don't want to disregard Coach Hickson there. Congrats on the Hall of Fame bid. Uh, that's fantastic. But to look at these other guys, first of all, I want to continue with your Tony Parker point. There was a point where he was absolutely up there in terms of the best point guards in the league. He played with a great team. You know, people always say, well, what would it look like if he played on his own? You know, would he have gotten, you know, more recognition, this and that? Um, it's possible, but he was as good as anybody, and there were times when he was the best player on that team. I loved Tony Parker. Uh, I think it's really exciting to see him. He really br- uh, brought a new dynamic to the NBA. I think he has, there's a lot of credit that goes to him in terms of the way point guards play the game now. Um, and had a huge influence. Pau Gasol, to me, in terms of the NBA resume, maybe not as high as some of these other guys on the list, uh, won the international game, like we were just talking about FIBA, definitely counts for him. He and his brother Mark were fantastic to watch in those FIBA World Cups and Olympic tournaments. But also, I think Pau Gasol is a guy you could have put on any team in the NBA at any point, and he would have fit very well in Excel yeah. there. Uh, there was a time when playing with Kobe Bryant was a pretty difficult thing to do. <laughs> uh, as much as you and I both love Kobe, but that's just the truth. To come in there and fit so well and do so well with him is uh, an achievement enough in itself that may deserve a nod at the Hall of Fame just for that. Uh, but to have Gasol... Go in. I think he was one of my favorite players just for that reason. It just seemed like a guy that was truly unselfish and just did everything it took to win. I mean, he was just a true winning basketball player. Dwayne Wade was as exciting as you could get. I agree. I think he is the greatest Miami Heat player of all time. I think they aren't anywhere with, you know, Pat Riley's done great things. Eric Spolster has done great things. But I think the reason the Miami Heat, the reason they are where they are is because of him. I think they got a little lucky um, in that 2003 draft that he happened to be there for them. Uh, there's a lot of, you know, what ifs where someone probably should have taken him second overall in that draft. Uh, Detroit maybe could have had something really special there um, on a great team already. So I think that honestly the Miami Heat owe him a lot more credit than maybe they even give him now. I think he is the biggest reason they are what they are. Uh, and finally, is Dirk Nowitzki. He is even more so since he's left the NBA. It grows on me more that he's one of my two or three favorite players I think that I've ever watched. Because I miss watching his game when I come across his highlights. I just miss everything he did. Um, he was just a perfect fundamental player. He was, again, one of those guys that was just the ultimate winner and he definitely has my favorite NBA title of all time. Uh, not only that he won and put a team on his back, but to go against a team that was basically supposed to break basketball with their talent. <laughs> uh, to do that and to just be as humble and just all fundamental skill. I mean, nothing about him other than his height. When you watched him walk and move out there, it looked like he was going to be a great player. There was, at times, some awkwardness, but I, I think he's one of the most amazing players I've ever seen. Uh, I wish there was more Dirk. I, I probably go watch his highlights more than any former player. Uh, I'm really excited for this, and again, not to just not talk about Coach Popovich, but again, another career that you know deserves talking about as well. Maybe the greatest coach we've had uh, in the NBA. Uh, that's yeah. 
final buzzer there for the fourth quarter. Really enjoyed those discussions. Hope you did too. When we come back from our break here, we're going to have maybe one of my favorite topics that we've had on here uh, coming up after the break. All right, Derek, we have a really special surprise here on the Picket Fence podcast today. Um, So I've just got my hands on, this is real breaking news here, bigger than new coaching hires, bigger than conference realignment. You and I have got our hands on a time machine today. I, I think pretty exciting news. And unfortunately, you and I aren't, super heroic and things we want to do with this time machine. Uh, we've, we've discussed this already. Uh, we've got a handful of things we're going to do with it, and all of them involve uh, some trips back in time to watch some very historic basketball games. Um, I apologize. Our apologies to President Kennedy. Uh, we're not going to use that to prevent anything uh, <laughs> in history. But We are not um, using our powers for good. We're not. We're not even using our powers for bad. We're using it strictly for leisure. Strictly self-indulgence. Uh, that's right. That's it. We're not We're not going to hurt anything, but we're certainly not going to help anybody. Uh, what we're going to look at now is, with this time machine, we can go back in time each to a handful of basketball games throughout history. The idea is that if you had this, what game would you go back in time to see? Whether it be for that particular game or to see a particular player so maybe it's not a specific game but you're going back then to see this player play so we've talked about this and we'd like to see maybe three NBA games or three college games two college games uh, three NBA games some combination of two to three NBA games or two to three college games but we each get five so we're going to be going back in time and and trying to witness some history, witness some historical players or some pivotal moments in basketball with this time machine. Very excited to take this trip with you, Derek. Um, I'm going to let you kick us off here. If you had this opportunity to go back in time and witness any basketball game, what is your first choice or one of your choices? Okay, I'm going to do them in ascending order, so I'll save my favorite for last. But if I'm going to my my top three NBA games, if I were going to go back and pick from, from previous history... Um, to go back and watch in the time machine. For me, my first choice that I'm going to go with is Game 6 of the 1980 NBA Finals where Magic Johnson plays all five positions as a rookie, goes on to win the NBA Finals MVP. Of course, Game 6 played without Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, Kareem would not have been available for Game 7 if Philadelphia had won. And Magic decided to go out and absolutely have himself a night. Scored a game-high 42, grabbed 15 rebounds, and had 7 assists. So for me, if I'm picking three NBA games that I want to go back tonight, and I went back and forth with one other game that we can talk about as an honorable mention later, uh, but I wanted to start off with Game 6, 1980 NBA Finals. Magic Johnson announcing his presence in the NBA and closing out the Sixers in Game 6 to win the Lakers the NBA title. So that was so close to making my list. I thought so hard about that. Um, I think that's probably one of the more amazing games performances of all time. 
again, so close to making my list. That's an amazing one. I don't have it on mine. Maybe I'll tag along on your uh, your time machine trip there. Uh, I forgot to mention. I guess I'll establish this. We have chosen games that we were not alive to have been able to see. If we were young and don't remember, that's not the case here. We had to go back in time to something prior to our birthday. Uh, but that's a great pick to lead us off. Um, I'm going to throw out another game here, and I'm going strictly here for the the uh, iconic moment. Okay, I'm going back to May 8th, 1970. Game 7 of the NBA Finals, the New York Knicks against the Los Angeles Lakers. Willis Reed is not expected to play in this game, and he is the captain. He is the biggest star in New York basketball. And with the series tied 3-3, three to three, it is not looking great for New York against the Lakers. you got to play Chamberlain without your star center. And hobbling out of the tunnel comes Willis Reed, one of the more iconic moments in the history of NBA basketball. I think I would just love to be in the garden for that moment. Willis didn't have a huge game. He hit like his first two shots. The garden went crazy. It ended up being really Walt Frazier's night, and they beat the Lakers. But I think there are probably two or three big, like, goosebump moments in certain sports. I think that's got to be up there in the top two or three, like, biggest goosebumps, iconic moments of all time. So if I could go back in time, I'd want to see... Willis Reed walk out of the tunnel. I want to know what the garden felt like in that moment to see their guy come out and they know after that, I mean, I feel like it's over. The Lakers know it's over with. New York knows they've got the championship. So I'm going to May 8th, 1970. I would love to experience that moment and just know what it felt like when the garden was really, really rocking. It had to be one of the great all-time momentum swings. Yeah, for sure. For sure. <laughs> so I like that one. If you can get two tickets, I will gladly tag along. Back to MSG. That's right. The second one on my list as far as NBA games, and I picked three NBA games. I picked two college games. The second list on my NBA games goes back to the 1980s. Again, sticking it, you know, staying in the 80s. When Michael Jordan went to Boston Garden, and despite losing the game and despite losing the series – made Larry Bird famously say, I think he's God disguised as Michael Jordan. And on this particular night in Boston Garden, Michael Jordan decided to drop 63 points on 41 shots without attempting a three. He had a team-high six assists, also had five boards, three steals, two blocks, played 53 minutes in a double overtime game, and it also just returned that year in March after missing 64 games from breaking his foot. Not too shabby, Mike. No, pretty pretty good <laughs> night in the garden. Yeah, that's pretty amazing. That's another one that I think is definitely an honorable mission for me. Uh, that You talk about your all-time breakout games. Um, that's a pretty amazing one. Uh, would definitely be on the list if I had more more opportunities to travel back in time there. Uh, as I jump to my second game, I think I have one that's similar to you, so I'd like to discuss this okay. with you, okay? So we're going to both go back to this game here, March 2nd, 1962. Make another trip to the Garden. Will Chamberlain has a hot night. <laughs> uh, 
Uh, Derek, if you want to read off that stat line, there's really one that we care about. Give me a second. If he's got it. <laughs> well, first of all, let's establish. Will Chamberlain scores a measly 100 points in the garden. Uh, <laughs> a feat that has not been uh, matched in the NBA since. Uh, there have been some games. Kobe Bryant was 20 points off, but... Uh, we've not seen anything quite like that. Um, if you find another stat line that would make you know pretty interesting as well, if there's some other uh, big stats with that game, but uh, I'll let you talk about that one as well. But I think that's probably the most iconic game in the history of the NBA. Uh, there's just that famous picture of him holding just a piece of paper that says 100. Yeah. Uh, I think I want to see it just because I want to know. I want to know what it's like to watch a guy really score 100 points in a professional basketball yeah. game. How about you? Yeah, I wanna I w- I wanna go because I wanna make sure it actually happened. Yeah. It's one of those deals like it's so that number is so absurd at a professional level, or really any level, when you think about a hundred points, you think about teams that can't score a hundred, let alone one guy going out and getting it. Um, and so looking at the stats, he's thirty six of sixty three from the field. 57%. He's 28 of 32 from the free throw line, which had to have been his best all-time free throw percentage day ever because I think he was perennially you know, somewhere in like the mid-50s to mid-60s range from the free throw line. But just a game, when you think about all-time great games, if you're going to pick one, that's number one on my list out of my three NBA games is you know to be able to say that you were in that game, to have that ticket, to have a seat in that gym on that night, to see that performance, I think would have just been absolutely insane. And you talk about can't miss basketball, you know, must see TV. Why in the world there's no film of what he did that night? I'll never know. Uh, but I think it still remains the only NBA game that never officially finished because it was a blowout game. And when he cracked a hundred, they called the game off and they went to the locker rooms. You know, and I would love to have been the news reporter or the team manager that scribbled the 100 on a piece of paper and gave it to him, that would have been, that would have been awesome. Yeah, I, I think that's what kind of just makes it even more interesting is there's really no – there's record of it on paper. Right. And there have been people who have claimed to have been there and they have said it to be true. But we have no evidence of it in terms of – Film, or really, I don't even know if we have any radio clips. I think there might be some bouncing around. I mean, by the way, for that season, he averaged 50 points a game and I think 25 rebounds. So <laughs> uh, that was his that was his season average was 50 a game. Which you know, when you when you're hovering around there, I guess 100 doesn't seem like such a big deal. But uh, is it with it never being tested or not being a record? I want to know. I want to see all those field goals go in. I want to know that he actually made that many free throws. Um, I want to know what the atmosphere is like when you're watching someone score that many points. I mean, once you get into the 60s and 70s, I feel like the arena is going to have a certain feel. <laughs> you know what I mean? I feel like oh, there's got to be yeah. energy. Um, I got to know what, you know, are his teammates mad? I feel like they're not getting a lot of looks in this game. Uh, (laughs) they're probably getting some double triple teams I'm not sure but I want to see everything I want to take it all in I want to see him put that 100th point through the hoop and I think that's the top of my NBA list I know it's the top of yours 
Uh, I don't think there could be a better game to go back and witness, especially with there being no video of it whatsoever. Now, as the coach in that game, I think you've got to feel pretty confident in the type of offense you're running when you got a guy going like that. But on the other side, to be the coach on the other bench, what I mean, what adjustments are you making? You going to double the guy? You going to triple the guy? Maybe go throw a zone at him. You've got to feel like the most helpless human maybe ever down there on the other sideline just watching this dude drop a hundo on your head. Yeah. I feel like the coach is going to be like, all right, who's got him, man? Yeah. I mean, team effort here. All five of you guys go stand by Will. Yeah. But definitely what I would have to witness. I think if I could go back and see pretty much almost anything, that that's up there. Uh, let's shift towards – college basketball are there a couple of historic college basketball games that if granted a time machine you would go back and watch all right well admittedly on the first one i kind of cheated the system because i didn't pick one particular game okay. I, I lumped several into kind of into one if that makes sense so if, if the time yeah. machine works we're going to go back and we're going to buy season tickets right. and then we're going to repeatedly go watch this person play so as far as college goes, I said any or all Pistol Pete games as a senior at LSU. You know, we've talked about what he averaged, something like 42 a game. With the three-point line, they've gone back and superimposed that into some of his film, and he would have averaged like north of 50 or 55 because of where he was pulling from on the offensive end. His ability to score the basketball, to be a playmaker, to pass – and the flash and the flair that he played the game of basketball with, I think, is arguably still second to none. Uh, so I think being able to be in the stands in Baton Rouge at LSU and just get to watch basically basketball being played as an art form, you know, for those three years that he was there, but especially his senior year, you know, with what he was able to do offensively and ratchet his points per game up would have been too much fun to pass up. So for me, I'm saying absolutely any game that Pistol Pete played in as a senior. Yeah, I would have to agree with that. Um, I don't have any of his games on here, but he was one that was on my short list. Uh, I don't think there's just one. I think if you catch him on any night, you're getting a good one. Uh, Just playing light years ahead of his time. Uh, I'm going to go back to April 1st, 1985. It is... The championship game between Villanova and Georgetown, one of the most exciting and uh, unexpected upsets, especially being a national championship game. They refer to this as the perfect game. And the reason I want to go see this, just being a basketball nerd and just being someone that just, you know, I dive into the numbers a lot. I want to see, you know, what teams are doing to be so efficient and so, um, you know, so effective. I want to break down this game very, very quickly. So in this game, which is a very close finish, it should be noted that Georgetown attempted 53 field goals and Villanova attempted 28 field goals, and they ended the game 22 for 28. They shot an unbelievable field goal percentage, and had to with the talent that Georgetown had, with Patrick Ewing being just a much bigger, much bigger program in terms of just the size of the players they had. Villanova dominated not only the shot selection, but the time of possession. 
they were holding each, holding the ball for 30 seconds, almost every possession, as often as they could. They wanted to take it 20, 25, 30 seconds. Ran their offense to found to find the perfect shot each and every time. I know we can watch this on YouTube. I have. But to be there in the gym like we've talked about, the feel is something different. You know, if we've got FanDuel back then, we've got a lot of people putting money down on the Hoyas leading into these early and, and mid-80s tournament games. For Villanova to dominate the basketball, to take care of it so well, to not only beat Georgetown, but do it in what they refer to now as the perfect game. I think it would be amazing to see, and for somebody that is kind of a nerd when it comes to that stuff, uh, I would love to go watch, go back and watch a game that was executed like that. So I would love to watch that national championship game. Yeah, and that one is arguably maybe the biggest upset we've seen in a national championship game to this point in NCAA history because, like you said, no one expected Georgetown to come out and lose that game. Like, you know, Villanova did everything right. And it took it took the perfect game for them to win the national title. But you yeah. talk about no better time to do it. Yeah, no kidding. And I mean, it's not like – it's not like they just got hot and hit a bunch of shots. Like they just found the perfect one. You couldn't yeah. have, you couldn't have executed a game plan any better than that. Yeah, and it's rare that you get you get two conference opponents playing in a national championship game because you know that's the second, probably the third time they're seeing each other that year. Uh, so there's no secret as to what the other team is going to do, what they've got personnel wise. So I'm with you, man. That '85 title game. If you've got a chance to go back and get a ticket, that would be one to definitely be in the seats for. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, on mine, I'm going straight homer mode, and I'm taking the Indiana Hoosiers 1987 NCAA championship game. I get to use this one because it happened a month before I was born. Oh, there you go. It's so it still counts. I was not here yet. Um, but the Indiana Hoosiers in New Orleans – 1986-1987, the NCAA champions. As we know, Keith Smart is the hero hitting the baseline jump shot to put the Hoosiers over the top against the Syracuse Orangemen, which gave Bobby Knight his third NCAA championship in 11 years. That year, the Hoosiers were 30-4. and They went 15-3 and in the Big Ten. They won the Big Ten regular season championship, despite Bob Knight being less than happy after their effort against Northwestern and making one of his more historic post-game interviews talking about leadership or more so lack thereof leadership. Uh, Steve Alford, the standout player, averaged 22 points a game that year. Daryl Thomas, I think, was the glue to that team, though. Averaged almost 16. Um, without him, they probably don't win the national title. Keith Smart was a, was a JUCO transfer that came in, had some big impact there uh, the last two years of his college career. Just a solid team and made the run through the Big Ten and then was able to go capture a national championship on what was a game-winning basket by Keith Smart. So I'm going with the 87 Indiana Hoosiers and their national title game. Yeah, I think all IU fans, if they could go back, would get a ticket to that one for sure. Um, that's, it's all we have to hold on to, Cam. That's it. That's <laughs> it. It's been a while. Yeah, it's been a while since that's happened. Um, <laughs> that's a good one, though. Um so I'm going to go back as well. Another national championship game. We're spending a lot of time in the 80s here. Uh, I'm going back to April 4th, 
1983. So we've been to several 80s national championship games on this uh, on this trip here. NC State beats the five slamma jamma Houston Cougars, and not just a win. And I'm, I'm noticing a theme with mine. There's a couple. There's several upsets on my list here. Yeah. Um, much like Villanova, NC State definitely an underdog in terms of just the the media attention. Houston's got this amazing team. They've got the nickname. They're really fun. You've got Olajuwon uh, kind of headlining that squad. But you famously have the game-winning shot that is well, well short that NC State tips in right at the buzzer to win 54 to, fi- uh, to 52 in 1983. Now, I don't want to go to see any of this basketball game, as much as exciting as all these players. There's really one moment I want to see. When that ball gets tipped in, and we've all seen the clip, Jim Valvano absolutely loses his mind. Head coach for NC State. He is just looking for someone to tackle or be tackled by. Running across the court, just trying to find somebody. First of all, maybe the most amazing finish we've had in the NCAA tournament, uh, in the tournament, let alone being a championship. But to, to just see the clip of him doing that, I want to be there. I want to go be the first person to give him a hug. I'm going to get on the court. I'm going to have. I'm going to be there for him because he spends about 30 seconds trying to find somebody. It's an amazing finish. I would love to see the court just get stormed and people go crazy. Um, that's one of the more exciting finishes we've ever had. But to witness one of the most famous moments and then just to be part of the pandemonium would be my second college game. Yeah, I've, I've never seen a coach, let alone a grown man, <laughs> run around for so long just looking for a hug. Dude just wanted to embrace anybody that was in the gym. I love every second of it. They were not expected to win. Your guy, Lorenzo Charles, gets the big tip in to win the game. I don't know if, if Vegas had odds on this one or if FanDuel obviously wasn't around back then, but I can't imagine that Houston wouldn't have been eight and a half, nine and a half point favorites in that game, probably looking to run away with it given what they had talent-wise. Uh, gosh, that five slam and gym with, with Elijah Wan and Clyde Drexler. Uh, just athletes on top of athletes on top of athletes on that squad. And to me, as much as it's impressive that NC State wins the game, it might be more impressive they held Houston to 52 points. Yeah, I know. That's what's <laughs> incredible, too. Yeah. Like, that may be the most impressive stat of the entire thing. Yeah, there's some real, real uh, fantastic execution in the games we're going back to watch. Now, uh, not to. Not to take away from these great games here, Derek, but I have only mentioned four games, and I, too, broke the rule slightly. This is not an NBA game or a college basketball championship. It is an amateur basketball game, and it is before we were born. We're going to take our time machine to our final game back to December 21st, 1891. 30-year-old James Naismith introduces the very first basketball game at his hometown YMCA. (laughs) He had 13 rules, of which famously was a peach basket hung 10 feet above the floor, which I love that it stayed at 10 feet. Yeah. They had a soccer ball, a 10-foot peach basket, and... 
just from memory, having read about it, I believe the final score ended one to nothing. So we have a final winner. I think they played nine on nine in the YMCA gym with a peach basket. I want to go watch it, but I would also, as the game starts, if I'm going to intervene in any part of history, aside from hugging Jimmy Balvano, I'm going to go get a ladder and I'm just going to cut a hole in the bottom of that peach basket and blow their minds. Listen, hey guys, this is going to be a lot more efficient if we just take care of this problem here real quick. That's right. That's all you got to do. They had a guy, I think they had the custodian use a broomstick to like hit the bottom until the ball bounced out, which if the game was one to nothing, he wasn't working I was going to say, the beauty of that is he wasn't working real hard. No. Not like he was staying busy. No, but I think if I had the time machine, I'm going back to watch the very first installment of this great game and just see what it looked like. How much do you think it would blow their mind if you showed up and you just started dribbling? I think, well, uh, if I'd let the first game happen, I don't want to affect history. Game two, I'm, I'm lacing up, I'm tagging in, and I'm just dominating. Game two, I'm putting the ball on the floor. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to go behind my back a couple times, and I'm not the greatest ball handler, but I guarantee I can get to the rim against... Some of these guys in 1891 Springfield, Massachusetts. <laughs> I'm introducing Indiana Hoosier basketball very, very early. <laughs> oh, man. I like that. You said you were going to catch me off guard with one, and you did, and I appreciate it. I had it in my back pocket. I didn't know if I put it out there, but I think in terms of importance, that may be the most important game. And if we're going back in time, we may bring Chamberlain with us back to 891 and really see how they feel about that one. Um, <laughs> I don't think they would have played. I, I think it's over. Like, nope, this, nope, this game's all wrong. This is not for us anymore. <laughs> well, we would love to hear what games you'd like to go back and see. Uh, please comment on our social media pages and tell us what we'd really love to know uh, on our Twitter, at Pick a Bench Podcast, uh, on Instagram and Facebook. Uh, if, you, if you like this episode, please share it with somebody. We have some great interviews with some great coaches, state championship winning coaches, Hall of Fame coaches. Uh, we'd love to hear your opinion, your take. What games should we have gone back to see? What game would you like to see? Uh, thank you for joining us. And as always, for both of us here on the Picket Fence Podcast, don't, don't get, get caught, caught watching, watching the, the paint, paint dry. dry.